everyone today and uh, visitors to Cornbrook Baptist as well. Always great to have you with us and, uh, and I trust that uh, this morning, uh, see this was the morning we needed Bernie Saunders mitts. <laughs> I, said to, uh, I said to the San Jose's with me this morning that uh, I don't know whether it would have been better for me to have brought my hockey stick this morning or my Bible because I f feel that little, uh, last week was so warm here this, this morning, it's a little cooler. So if like, if I get partway through the sermon, you need to get up and beat yourself, uh, you know, like the sealers used to do, I'll understand. And uh, I won't hold that against you if you make a little scene, just trying to keep warm or you get up and tap your feet a little bit because it is a little bit uh, unseasonably cold here today. Now, I've been following the, uh, the pattern of the church in preaching from the book of James, the epistle of James. And so we've, as you move on in your small, small groups, I continue it for the Sunday. And, uh, and uh, we're all in sync during this period of time. And this morning, uh, I want to speak on picking genuine faith out of a lineup. Now, in the mid-1990s, I, uh, I was a pastor. In fact, my first pastorate in uh, Lower Sackville, Nova Scotia. And one evening, uh, as I recall, a friend and I and our wives went to Halifax for a short walk along the waterfront. We do this on warm summer evenings. It was, it was very pleasant. Part of our plan that evening was to take the ferry across to, across the harbor to Dartmouth, walk a section of Portland Street and return later in the evening. Now the early part of the evening went very, very well. Well, upon arriving in Dartmouth, we witnessed or we came upon a vicious mugging that was taking place. Two young men were assaulting a third man with paving bricks in an area where the sidewalks were being repaired. Just outside, sort of short distance from the ferry term, terminal, which at that time of, of evening was nearly deserted. They were trying to rip a fanny pack off this man, and it was, uh, it was in fashion in those times to wear those things, and he had a rather expensive leather one, and it was, it was on pretty tight. In the process, they smashed his eye, eye, eyeglasses. We found his camera about 100 feet away from where he was attacked. Like any good citizens, my friend, friend and I, came, who came up on this, chased off the muggers. I don't know why they were afraid of us. We were nothing special in terms of our combative skills. But apparently we were intimidating enough to, to, get, to, to get them away. We carried the man, who we later found out was a Newfoundlander from around St. John's, carried him into the terminal and called emergency services. And so we stayed for a while. The investigation began, and we answered questions, gave our statements. And as we did so, the final ferry of the evening left without us. And so it was a little bit different because we were driven back to Halifax to where our car was in a police car. Our wives in one car where they belonged. <laughs> and us in a separate car where we also probably belonged. 
Several days passed and we, were, we had been informed in advance that we would be asked to pick the suspects out of a, out of a, a lineup after the mugging. It was an interesting experience because the two men were later arrested. We had, to, we had to identify two men who we saw for a short period of time in semi-darkness and under, as you can understand, far less than ideal cir circumstances. Well, my friend and I got it right, believe it or not. The men later appeared in court, and you could not believe the transformation that took place when we saw them in court. They were cleaned up to resemble pillars of society. But despite their attempts or their lawyers' attempts at making them look presentable, they each got a decade in prison. One got 10 years and the other got 11. Both had a lengthy criminal record. I saw their rap sheet. And they were caught since they assaulted others that same night and evidence was on them. Both the blood and the stolen property of the people they'd injured and robbed. In fact, it's a wonder we didn't run into the other mugging that took place of an elderly lady on Portland Street that same night. But suppose this morning, come away from my scene, supposing we had to pick faith, genuine faith, out of a lineup, out of all kinds of other things that are out there. What would convict a person of being genuinely motivated by faith? Because you and I see lots of it. We see lots of things in our society that religious people use and say, this is what faith means. And we know that some of it is true and some of it is bogus. But James draws a connection between the faith that people say they have and the factors that make it genuine faith. And we need to know the two apart. Here's the way James sets it up in chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. And we read this as though he's talking to actual people, which he is. He's writing to a group of Christians in his time. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, first clue, but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. Thank you for your announcement, Eugene. You're playing right into what I'm saying this morning. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Some virgins say the demons tremble. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called 
God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she, she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Amen. Well spoken. James does an admirable job of putting these things out there. Now, James does not describe the evidence of faith in purely cerebral terms. It's not a matter of thinking the right thoughts or believing the right doctrines, as important as those things are. Even demons, James says, believe the truth. It's absolutely not a knowledge-based argument. It can't, faith is not just a diploma on the wall, a course that has been taken, or a status that gets confirmed, that get, gets conferred by a religious community or some kind of religious ceremony that says this person, by virtue of their membership, is a person of faith. Well, here's the down and dirty truth. Faith never works as a standalone virtue, but always works in tandem. That's decidedly a concrete one, and that's deeds or works. If faith as defined by the writer to the he Hebrews as the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, then deeds is the action part of that. It's to get up and do something about the problem because the power and the resources to bring the change are available to us. You see, when faith begins to move so that it's complete, all the questions may not be answered, all of the resources may not be laid aside and available. It does not mean that there won't be some obstacles, but the hands get busy doing what the heart says is entirely necessary. Both are active. And when these concepts work together, we have faith and deeds, which becomes the finest testimony of a changed life. Not only show me what a person believes, but show me what a person does based on that belief. Lucy, that fearsome young lady of Char Charlie Brown fame, was a person of faith. When she believed something, she had a method of putting it into action. She once convinced Char Charlie Brown of the rightness of her cause. She showed him five fingers and allow me to paraphrase that great theologian named Lucy. She said, each of these fingers alone cannot accomplish much, but bunch them together into a fist and they can accomplish mighty deeds. Charlie Brown got the point. You see, we should too. The church, we say, has arms and structures and departments, but nothing is accomplished until every single part of the body gets united in purpose, and begins to do things to get God's work done. Thank you, Lucy. You see, James doesn't use the creation of Charles Schultz to make his point. 
Instead, he does something a little bit what you'd expect. He pulls out two characters from Israel's history, and they're poles apart. The first is the greatest of all the patriarchs, their national father, Abraham, the one who started it all back in the beginning. You see, Abraham would have remained an unknown if he'd not translated his faith into action. When you first read about him, he breaks free of his clan. He makes a trek to a brand new place, even though he went out not knowing where he was going, the scriptures tell us. He went based on a promise. He went as an act of faith, but he went. He didn't stay in Ur and say, well, God has talked to me, and I'm just going to wait and see what the next step is. God said, get up from among your kindred and go and I'll tell you when to stop. And he went. Paul says Abraham did not stagger at the odds against him becoming a great nation. Now there's a problem in Abraham's life when you look at him a little bit. And I took some time this week to go back to his life to make this point. He had, as we sometimes say, I know it's common in this province to say that sometimes people have neither chick nor child. When God told him that his descendants would be as numerous as the grains of sand on the seashore or as numberless as the stars above him in the night sky. He believed what God said when God said you will become a great nation and something like a cash register dinging ta-ching happened and Paul says and James says that righteousness was deposited into the account of Abraham because he believed and moved based on what God told, uh, told him. Righteousness got imputed to him, is what the scriptures say. Now, Abraham's faith was not without its test. Sarah grew old, her body changed, and don't you think Abraham knew his body was changing too? He's a hundred. Nobody has yet called him daddy except an estranged son named Ishmael. God had said the baby would come from his own body and would come from the womb of Sarah. And all Sarah could do when the angel said she was going to have a baby was laugh. Most of us would too. You see, when I got to this point in developing, developing this story on the faith of Abraham, I had to rein in my imagination a little bit. There are no reproductive technologies in this period of time. There are no special pills, no medications, no interventions. They lived in a tent in the middle of nowhere, and the only way to get a baby, folks, pardon me for being a little bit graphic, was the old-fashioned way. Now, when Abraham found out that Sarah was with child, I suspect he had more than a spiritual boost to his friendship with God. <laughs> if he's a man, like I understand what it's like to be a man, his self-esteem went to, from zero to 100 with just one birth announcement, one change in Sarah's life. Can you imagine the spring that must have been in Abraham's step at 100 years of old? You hear he's going to be a daddy? 
I wish I'd been around when they put up Abraham and Sarah's 80th wedding anniversary picture on NTV News and then announced that they're going to have their first baby. <laughs> Abraham and Sarah would have been on every talk show in their time and received a lifetime supply of diapers. <laughs> but what's interesting is I thought about it like an afterthought. They'd have got the diapers for the baby and possibly for themselves. <laughs> you see, it's not impossible to have a little bit of fun with this kind of stuff. But remember something in the midst of this. Faith without works is dead. So Abraham, a hundred years old or not, and Sarah, 90 or not, kept believing but they also kept up the activity that produces babies. It was never enough, you see, it was never enough to believe for a baby. All that, and I got to be able to make this point without having to say the word sex once in church. <laughs> see, after such a trial, having a child, and here's the, here's the continuing story. It's more amazing that Abraham would hearken to the voice of God and take his only son Isaac into the land of Moriah and prepare to offer him as a sacrifice unto God. Now, you know, I can, I can almost imagine Abraham having a, a couple of moments with his friend, with God himself and saying, you're asking a, an awful lot. But Abraham's obedience, you see, is no empty effort. He goes into Moriah, and the scripture tells me he carried the wood, and he carried the source of the fire, and when he got there, he created an altar, and we know that God halted his hand at the last moment, but Abraham's faith was so strong that he believed, and Hebrews tells us about this about him, that God, that he believed that God could raise up his son even after he had slain him on that altar. No wonder so many have picked him out of a faith lineup. No wonder when Hebrews puts together its lineup of faith that Abraham says, by faith, Abraham went to a land that he didn't know, looked for a city that he'd never seen. Now, you can't even imagine how I struggled with, the, with choosing art, artwork for that slide. That is a picture of nightmarish proportions to raise a young man and then to be asked to do something like this when it's the only child, the only legitimate heir in your household. Now, the second example is Rahab, whose account comes to us in the historical book of Joshua. You see, before the crossing of the Jordan, the, the Israelites, now led by Joshua, sent two spies to check out their first obstacle when they crossed Jordan, which was the fortified city of Jericho. It was reportedly an impenetrable fortress. Those spies, the scripture tells us, lodged in the house of Rahab, who's described in Joshua 2 as a harlot. Now, maybe it made for great cover. Men entering and leaving the house of a known prostitute probably wasn't uncommon. 
could have gotten away for a while with that. In any case, the alarm gets raised if you read the story, and Rahab was ordered to bring the spies out to the authorities. Instead, she hid them. And for her unusual service, she negotiated the life of her family when the walls of Jericho eventually fell. Now, here's a woman of unnatural faith, and that's why James includes her. She acted against the knowledge of the things that she was surrounded with. She acted against her knowledge of the fortifications and the defensive forces of Jericho, and she threw in her lot with this mysterious invading nation. And it must be remembered as well that she also rejects the God of Canaan and she embraces the God of Israel at this time. So Jericho had obviously heard of the march of Israel since they embarked on the Exodus. She knew the story. Listen to Rahab's words as she puts her faith into action. She says, when we heard it, when we heard about what God had done on your behalf, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. If you read all of Joshua 2, it was Rahab's plan that got the spies safely back to Joshua with their report. Rahab makes a life or death decision, a faith choice that gave her a life far beyond any she could ever have enjoyed in Jericho. You see, in this passage is the portrait of faith that gets a girl named Rahab, who's known in Scripture as a prostitute, into Hebrews chapter 11, which we know is often called the Faith Hall of Fame. By faith, this one and that one, and everybody who's notable in most of the Old Testament is there. In verse 31, Rahab the harlot gets numbered along with Abraham and Sarah and Noah and Joseph and Moses. How does a Canaanite prostitute get into that group? Which tells me so much about the grace of God to choose whom he wants and to transform their lives. They, these were people who saw beyond their circumstances, and here's an element of faith. They acted in confidence based on God rather than what was going on around them. And it always involved not just thinking rightly about God, but doing something about where they were and the circumstances that were placed before them. Rahab converted. She broke free from conventional thinking. That's an element of faith. She was not bound by her reputation. Her personal circumstances didn't de uh, deter her, and neither did her gender distract from her decision because she's living in a world that was dominated by men. Her deeds are heroic, and her legacy reaches us today. Hebrews 11 records this about her in verse 31. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Rahab's scarlet cord, because that was the signal, wasn't it? The house where she and her family would reside 
when the city of Jericho fell would have a scarlet cord dangling from a window. A passerby would say, it's like a, she was the original red light district, except there's no lights. She hung a cord from her window about her profession. But it's not as much about her profession as about her confession. She said, here am I. I'm on your side. When the walls fall, come and get me. It's challenged us for generations to, to attempt bold things for God. See, James, as a way of silencing his opponents, when he makes a bold de declaration here, a person who has faith only is like a corpse. <laughs> it's a body that's devoid of life. It's only a shell. And his words, faith without works, is dead. One of the reasons that word works is one of the reasons why Martin Luther called James an epistle of straw. Didn't want it in the canon of scripture. If we go back to the beginning of this passage, there's a scene of someone. Someone comes into the first century church and they're obviously in need. Their basic needs are not being met. Food, shelter, clothing. You see, faith, faith that their lives will get better, James says, is not enough. Best wishes at a time like that is useless. You can't even say that hope is what this person needs. You see, the faith that Jesus rewarded is faith that reaches. And faith always has to reach beyond thought. Reaching for a changed life like Zacchaeus, who came out of this house because he was short of stature, he climbed a tree, and Jesus saw the man there. He risked, because he was a despised man, he risked himself by climbing a tree. The woman that Jesus described as having the bleeding disorder. Remember how the King James put it, she had an issue of blood. She came out and walked among the throngs with the thought, and here you see your, see your action? If only I can touch the hem of his garment, I will be whole. A faith so strong that when she reached Jesus, she was made whole, and he perceived, gospel writer says, that virtue went out of him, healing virtue. Faith that Jesus found in a centurion who said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to even walk in my house. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And that servant was that selfsame hour. See, reaching, that act of reaching. This morning, I watched us all as we gathered, and so many of us reached out. One time, it used to be a handshake or a hug. Now it's more often the elbow. Something I, I'm having trouble rethinking all of that because... I love playing hockey and elbowing is something I'm not allowed to do. <laughs> and so now I get to elbow people and it's perfectly acceptable. I don't even get a penalty for it. <laughs> you see, Abraham reached and he fathered a nation. 
became the seed plot from whence the Messiah would spring. Rahab reached, and here I see the plan of God unfolding. Rahab reached, and she becomes a direct ancestor of that Messiah. Yeah, Jesus is related to a prostitute if you read Matthew chapter 1. Would we dare to reach beyond our intellectual knowledge, beyond the doctrine that we have stored in our mind, beyond our emotions? And the first act of reaching always has to be inviting Jesus Christ to come and change our lives. That's the very first act of faith that a person of faith does. You see, that's always faith's goal for people not just to know it, but to live it. To be identifiable as followers of Christ by their deeds. I found a great quotation to conclude with this morning. Bring up the next slide for me. Don't ask God to guide your footsteps if you're not willing to move your feet. Isn't that an amazing line? Doesn't that, sort of, doesn't that sort of just coalesce into what James was trying to tell us in that first century letter? That's our challenge right there. I want us all to believe right. I want us to have the, that, that wonderful grasp of truth. I want us all to be well-versed in what it means to know what the truth is, and what the reality is for what the Christian life is like. But then I think even greater than that, once we know the truth, the truth sets us free, and we do. I'm not asking us to do things so that we get credit for it and that someone, uh, you know, says, oh, there goes a person of faith. You should see what they do. No. I think the left hand doesn't need to know what the right hand has done. I don't think we do it for any human applause, but we do it in humility as underservants of Jesus Christ, who says, I will go and die for this world, and he does it, and the faith is, our whole faith is based on that, but he didn't do it to be praised of men. He did it to redeem people. His mission is redemptive. That's ours. Our mission is redemptive. Mission is that people would be grafted into the body of Christ, the Rahabs who don't belong, the Abrahams who refuse to take defeat as the final answer, the Moses who grows up in Pharaoh's court but refuses to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. All of these great heroes of faith. I trust God will make us those quiet heroes in our society so that our world gets changed person by person because they see Jesus Christ in us and want to follow him too. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, thank you for faith that is active. Thank you for James' epistle which nudges us not just to know right, but to do right. Not just to be orthodox in our thinking, but to resemble you in our practice. 
to walk, to reach, to do, based on the faith that propels us forward. I pray that in the, in the coming days, you will open fresh opportunities for us to walk like you did, to exercise the faith of Abraham and, and, and Rahab, and to show our world that there's a brand of faith that's just not all talk, but it's walk. And so we bless you today. And now as we go our separate ways or as we commune together, I pray that we will do so with the knowledge that God has empowered us by his spirit to do the works of Christ while it is day. For the night comes when none of us shall work. Blessed be our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, unto you be glory and praise and honor and dominion forever. Amen. God bless you. It's a joy again to be with you today.